In the 1970s, ooh, suspense there. In the 1970s, <laughs> stuntman Evil Knievel wanted to jump across the Grand Canyon. When the U.S. government said no, <laughs> he looked for a comparable challenge, and he found it in Twin Falls, Idaho, at the Snake River Canyon, where there was a where there is a 1,600-foot wide gap. So Knievel used a steam-powered rocket that he hoped would reach 200 miles an hour upon the launch and 350 miles an hour in the air. Now, the launch went well, but trouble came when his parachute deployed too early. Maybe you remember. Uh, it stopped the rocket midair, and it landed him on the shore of the river. And amazingly, he only ended up with a broken nose. <laughs> What's the moral of the story? People do dumb things. <laughs> Sometimes the dumb things we do are simply out of ignorance. Take babies, for example. They put anything and everything into their mouths and try to eat it. They touch the oven or the stove because it looks pretty. And they climb on top of things with no plan of how to get down. Now, experience has taught us that those kinds of things are unwise, so we've stopped doing them. But we can't say that we've stopped doing dumb things altogether. We do dumb things even when we've experienced the consequence of that dumb thing over and over again. Take Evil Knievel, for example. Over the course of his stunt career, he broke over 40 bones in his body. But he kept on doing stunts. People do dumb things. They still do dumb things out of ignorance, but it's a willful ignorance, refusing to consider the consequences of their actions before acting. The book of Exodus contains familiar scene after familiar scene. Today, another one is in front of us, the golden calf incident. Now, we usually respond to Israel making and worshiping the golden calf as a wrong and sinful action. And that's a right response because it's true. It was a violation of the Lord's commandment and it was a massive betrayal on Israel's part. But not only was the golden calf wrong and sinful, it was also dumb. It was foolish. And you really don't have to think that hard to realize this. They worshiped a cow they made with their hands. But just like when we looked at Israel's grumbling in the wilderness, we tell ourselves, you know, we know better. Ah, but friends, that is so not the case. Because all of our sin is fundamentally the same as Israel's sin with the golden calf. All of our sin is a rejection of God to serve something lesser and something creator, created. Friends, that means all of our sin is dumb, is foolish. And we could say it even a little more precisely. The wrong things people do are foolish. People don't just do dumb things. The wrong things they do are foolish. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. It's on page 72, the Red Pew, Pew Bible in front of you. And as we go through Exodus 32 to 34, we'll see the foolishness of sin and we'll see the seriousness of sin We'll do some digging and find what lies underneath sin. We'll then follow Israel after this incident and notice the fallout that comes from this sin, what it looks like to turn from sin, and what it looks like to be restored to God after we do sin. Now, if you could distill this passage, Exodus 32 to 34, and distill this entire sermon into one main point, it'd be something like this. Sin is spiritual adultery and is never worth losing fellowship with God. But God is faithful when we are faithless, and there is hope for restoration through a mediator. Sin is spiritual adultery, never worth losing fellowship with God, but God is faithful when we are faithless, and there is hope for restoration through a mediator. There are four points for our sermon as we walk through this passage. First, the root of sin. Second, the responses to sin. 
Third, the repentance from sin. And finally, restoration after sin. I'll repeat those as we go in the sermon. I pray that today as we study this passage, God will help us examine our hearts to root out the idols we find there, that he'll give us grace and wisdom to continue to turn to him, and that he will give us fresh eyes to see Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. So first, we'll begin with the root of sin. This covers just the opening part of this passage, so we'll be in Exodus 32 and follow along as I read verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from the hand and fashioned it with a graving, with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a tragic interruption to the story. This incident here feels like coming home from a cross-country road trip and then getting in a car accident in your driveway. We're told of the timing of this incident in verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Moses was on Mount Sinai to receive instructions from God concerning how this people would represent him in the world and how he would dwell among them in the tabernacle and how priests would bring them into his presence. All the while, here Israel was. They had come so far while Moses was on the mountain. They had come from Egypt, crying out in slavery there. They had been delivered through plagues and through the splitting of the Red Sea. They had been sustained in the wilderness. And God had even enacted a covenant with them, binding promises. They came all that way. Here they are in the driveway, and they crash. So what is it that Israel did? If we're going to fill out the accident reports from this crash, what would it look like? Well, the incident is pretty straightforward. Let's see if we can uncover its nature a little bit more. When it says in verse 1 that the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, it does not convey the neutral tone that it does in English. The Hebrew doesn't. Now, this was not the friendly gathering that you would see at the local Rotary Club. No. This word, gathered together, implies that this was a forming of a mob, ready to strike. And so between the people and Aaron, they would break the first three commandments from the Ten Commandments. First, the people demand that Aaron make gods for them. It's a clear violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And then Aaron, bowing to the will of the people, attempts a compromise. You kind of have to notice it. Because in verse 5, he sees the golden calf, and then he says, we will have a feast to the Lord. And so what Aaron does is that he equates the golden calf with Yahweh himself. A clear violation of the second commandment. Worshiping Yahweh, the invisible God, through a visible image. Blending pagan worship with the worship of God. And then between the two, between the people and Aaron, resulted in a violation of the third commandment as well. For they had falsely represented God's name. Applying God's name to a God, small g. A God that they made with human hands. So that's the accident report. But why did Israel do it? Friends, there's always a deeper explanation to sin. We read in the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, says 
that God tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully formed, it brings forth death. So what were the desires that lay underneath Israel's sin? Verse 1 says that this incident sparked when they saw Moses was delayed. So underneath the sin of the golden calf was a desire for immediate knowledge and immediate gratification. In other words, underneath the sin of the golden calf was impatience. But we can dig even a little bit deeper. What explains impatience? Impatience has to be a lack of trust. Impatience comes when you lack trust for who or what you're waiting for. And we think about this for Israel. Did they have any good reason to lack trust in waiting for Moses or for God? Absolutely not. When Moses was delayed, they should have remembered Moses' instructions back in chapter 24, verse 14. When he said, hey guys, I'm going up to Mount Sinai to talk to God, to receive instructions for, from him. Wait here until I come back. Really straightforward instructions. But we press even further. They had no good reason to be impatient. No good reason not to trust God. You know, they wanted gods to go before them. They, had not, they forgot that God promised the exact same thing already promised to go before them. We think about this. They wanted God, they wanted something to provide them with leadership. But the same God who had provided them leadership was at the current time on the mountain with Moses, setting up a way in which he would dwell among them. If they only knew what he was doing at that moment. They had no good reason not to trust God to provide You think about this, the very same morning of the golden calf, they would have eaten manna that God gave them. If you think about this, they wanted God to provide. The very gold they used to make the golden calf, they only received because of God. But it wasn't only Israel who sinned. Aaron is also guilty. And so we ask, what what lays underneath Aaron's actions? Why did he bend to the will of the people? Well, it was because he was afraid of them. And why was he afraid of them? Dig a little bit deeper. Because Aaron must have believed that the only way to protect himself was to bow to the people's demands. Again, this is just a foolish belief. This is a foolish thought. Was God incapable of protecting Aaron? Further, was God not worth taking a stand for? But we could also say that underneath Aaron's sin was probably pride. Because we read back when Moses went up to the mountain, he didn't just leave leadership into the hands of Aaron. He left leadership into the hands of Aaron and the rest of Israel's elders. And so instead of when uh, being demanded by the people to make this golden calf, Instead of relying on the other elders, Aaron just acted unilaterally. Said, no, I'm going to make the decision on my own. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? Well, the golden calf can show us a lot of things. But what we focused on so far shows us that our sin is much deeper than we think. Our sin is much deeper than we think. And the deeper we dig to uncover what lays underneath our sin, the more foolish we discover our sin to be. Take something like adultery, for example. Adultery is deeper than finding another person besides your spouse to be attractive, although that's a part of it. There is a dark ecosystem embedded underneath adultery. Most people who cheat are not after a new spouse. They are after recapturing a thrill without any ties to commitment or responsibility. That's the depth of the heart in that action. But it's not just adultery, though. Underneath our bitterness and our anger can lay the mentality that we are the center of the universe. Underneath our worry about our performance and our appearance is the craving to be approved and praised by others. 
underneath our desire for money can be just our desire to rely only on ourselves and no one else. Underneath our laziness can be prioritizing our comfort and convenience above everything else. Friends, sin is always deeper than what appears at the surface. Always. So learn the art of pulling the weeds of sin by their roots. And the weeds of sin that appear in our lives are rooted in idols. They're rooted in worshiping something besides God or worshiping a God of your own making. So we must uproot our sin by uncovering the idols of our hearts. So he asks, how do we do this? Well, just some hints. Ask really good heart questions. Ask questions like, what gets me up in the morning? What is it that can't change or else my life will unravel and completely fall apart? What gets me through when everything else is going wrong? Do my ideas about God always reinforce my behavior? Or when I read the Bible, am I challenged by who God is? These are a way we can dig underneath the surface of our hearts. Friends, because sin goes deep, just like it did here for Israel. It was more than them just making a golden calf. They had corrupt hearts, idols in their hearts as well. Sin goes deep. We can't just trim it. We have to uproot it. So as we continue in the narrative of Exodus 32 to 34, we find the fallout from the golden calf incident and notice the different responses to sin. Here's our second point, the responses to sin. These responses go from chapter 32, verse 7, through chapter 33, through verse 6. It's a long section. Don't have time to read it, but we're going to hit its major parts, okay? Now, if we maintain the car accident analogy, this is the part after the accident where both parties are out of their cars. And so it's no reason then that this is a little bit of a tense situation here. So we can find at least four different responses to sin. At least four different responses. First, there is anger. We find God is angry. He wants to start over and make Moses a new nation. You can see God's response in chapter uh, 32, verses 7 to 10. In verse 10, God uses the word wrath to describe his response to sin. Now, wrath, as we've observed in the past, is not God's hot temper. It's God's settled, righteous response to sin. But later on, Moses is also angry. See that in verses 15 to 20. He descended Mount Sinai. He happened upon the people in the middle of their revelry. And he was upset that they had broken God's covenant that God was setting up with them. And that they had badly represented God to the nations around them. You find that in verse 25, to the derision of the nations. That's one response to what happens. But there's also the response of mercy. Moses pleaded with God to have mercy on the people. And thus, he, he gives us a model for prayer. We find that in verses 11 to 14. And you glance at those verses. You'll notice that Moses does not excuse, he does not belittle Israel's sin. But also, he prays with right motives. You see, he prays with the motive of wanting to maintain God's reputation. He wants God's glory not his own. So he, t he says, God, what will Egypt say if you had brought these people out of, out of that place and just left them stranded in the wilderness? But he prays with right motives. Also, you see that he prays in accordance to what God had promised in his word. He appeals to the covenant God made with Abraham. Those promises to multiply his seed, to give land, and to, through them to bless the nations around them. And later, in verse 14, it will even say that God relented because of Moses' prayer. So that makes us ask kind of a tricky question. Would God be at risk of breaking his promise if Moses didn't pray? 
No. Remember who we're dealing with here. This is God. This is the one who says, who is, I am who I am. His purposes do not change. What we have here then is God choosing to accomplish his plan through the prayers of his people. So God has a plan, and God has a plan for how he will bring about that plan. This means, friends, our prayers are far more important than we realize. This means that God expects to be pleaded with from his people. That he chooses to accomplish his purposes through his people's prayers. Do not underestimate the importance of prayer. Well, third, there's a response of blame shifting. You see, Moses confronted his brother Aaron about what happened. And in an explanation, much like Adam, after Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, we see Aaron minimized his role in the situation and really maximized the role of the other Israelites. That comes in verses 21 to 24. You see, Aaron was put in place kind of as a stopgap for Israel's behavior, but he abdicated his role, and the people broke loose, as Moses said, acted as if they had no restraints. So Aaron's blame shifting here, I think, is a reminder for all of us of how much we need Jesus' warning to remove the plank in our own eye before we notice the speck in our brother's eye. But last response to sin, the fallout from this situation, there's the response of judgment. This really lasts from chapter 32, verse 25, through chapter 33, verse 6. There are just a series of consequences for Israel's sin. We, see, we read of 3,000 people being slain for this sin. We read of God sending a plague on them. And we read of God removing his presence from their midst. So all these responses to sin, I think one dominant theme emerges. In the first point, we said that sin is far deeper than we think. But I think here, we should say that sin is far more serious than we think. Sin is far more serious than we think. When we read this passage, we have to admit that it makes us a little uncomfortable at certain points. I mean, 3,000 people dead, slain. That is brutal. Now, we do qualify reading that by saying that Israel's day is not our day, by saying that this is not a call for us to take up our swords and do the same thing. We've highlighted in weeks past that God's people are no longer a single geopolitical entity. No, God's people are composed from those of every nation on the earth. There are Christians in different governments. And you read of something in Romans 13, God has given the sword to imperfect governments to put down evil, at least until Jesus returns. Now, all that being said, what we read here is still hard. What we find here is still brutal. But when we read of it, we must remember that sin itself is brutal. This passage, even something like the cross of Jesus Christ, the entire Bible, none of it will make sense unless we see sin as God sees sin. It won't make sense. So you might ask, logically, how do I begin to see sin as God sees sin? Well, first, consider who it is we are sinning against when we do sin. Consider who we sin against. To do that, think about a honeymoon. Okay, your mind may go to a lot of different places when you think about a honeymoon, so let me narrow it here. The honeymoon is an exciting beginning of a new covenant relationship. There's intimate joy, there's delighting in the other person. But now, imagine the devastation of discovering your spouse cheating on you during your honeymoon. This isn't unlike Israel's actions here. God had just set up a covenant with them, and so quickly, it's like they're committing adultery with something else. Later on, in chapter 34, verse 16, God will call the golden calf incident spiritual adultery. Consider who it is we're sinning against. The covenant he's made with us. If this is spiritual adultery, 
Then consider also what it is we cheat on God with. Consider what we choose instead of him and compare it to God. Our mistresses cannot light a candle to the God of the universe. That's the whole point of passages like Isaiah 44, which we read earlier. It's the point of a passage like Psalm 106 or Romans chapter 1. Here, Israel exchanged the God who led them out of Egypt by his spoken word for a visible thing made with their own hands that couldn't speak. That's what they settled for. What do you exchange for God? What do you put in his place? Every time we sin, we give allegiance to something or someone that is not God. So friend, have you realized the seriousness, not just of sin in general, have you realized the seriousness of your sin in particular? Pray that God would show you the truth about it. Maybe a good place to start are those passages I mentioned, Isaiah 44, Psalm 106, Romans 1. Well, this passage challenges our view of sin and how serious we take it. But if our day is not Israel's day and we're not called to take up our swords just like them, then how do we show that we take sin seriously? How do we show that? Well, we stand on the Lord's side. And we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we fight against what would cause our hearts to sin. Also, we seek to protect our brothers and sisters in Christ from sin, lovingly warning them when necessary. Because we take sin seriously, we follow Christ's command of church discipline, calling a brother or sister to repentance when he or she is acting in a way that is contrary to what they profess to believe. That shows we have a concern for that individual. It shows we have a concern for the name of Christ not being associated with a life of open and unrepentant sin. It shows we take sin seriously. Friends, how are we growing to see sin as God sees it? We want to be a people who respond to our sin with humility and with seriousness. Let's ask God for help in this regard. Well, we've spent a lot of time in the tense moments of this passage, and we need to feel the heat from it. But the longer we feel the heat, the more we thirst for some kind of relief. But don't worry, it's coming. Let's continue reading this passage. We'll pick up in verse 12 of chapter 33. And this is our third point, repentance from sin. Chapter 33, beginning in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation, nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. By sinning against God, Israel told God that they were better off listening to and trusting in themselves instead of listening to and trusting in God himself. And we saw the seriousness of such an act by considering who it is we sin against and by considering how inferior our idols are in comparison to God. 
And God reinforced his serious stance against sin by saying that he cannot dwell with a sinful people. He says that in chapter 33, verse 5. A piece of tissue paper would have a better chance of surviving on the surface of the sun than would a sinful people have a chance of surviving with a holy God. The Bible will go on to say that when we stand before God to give an account for ourselves, that every one of our mouths will be stopped and no person will be declared good or righteous in his sight because the standard is himself. So here we read, the relationship between God and Israel is severely damaged. Previously, God has spoken with Moses as a friend, described in the tent where Moses would speak with God. You can read that in verse 11. But now, God is at odds with them, not as a friend, but as an enemy. So what would happen? What happened next? Well, Moses led the people in repentance. Moses had already went on behalf of the people. He had already interceded for them. We noticed that back in chapter 32. And at one point in chapter 32, Moses offered to be judged instead of Israel, asking God to blot him out instead of blotting Israel out. And Moses does the same thing here after there's more fallout from the people's sin. After God said that he would remove his presence from among them, Notice what Moses said, what Moses pleaded for in verse 15. He said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Go back to the marriage analogy. By sinning against God, Israel told God that they wanted all the benefits that a relationship with him offered but they did not want him himself. Do you see how Moses is saying the exact opposite in this situation? He told God, I don't want all the benefits if it doesn't mean, if it means I can't have you. A land flowing with milk and honey is nothing if God is not there. Here then, friends, is true repentance, wanting God above all else. The Bible will later say, call repentance as repentance toward God. So we said that we must pull out sin by its roots. But when we do that, we don't leave, it, we don't leave an empty space there. When we pull out our sin by its roots, we must replace our love for sin with love for God. So a couple of words about true repentance, wanting God above all else. If that's what true repentance is, and not just wanting the benefits, not just wanting good things, friends, then beware of benefits. Beware of good things. Listen, if you don't trust in Jesus, it could be because you feel like you're pretty set on your own. It could be that the good things you have in your life have given you a sense of security. But Jesus and the rest of the Bible will tell us that finding security in anything besides God, even finding security in good things, finding security in anything besides God is a false security because you will lose it and it will go away. So brothers and sisters who do trust in Jesus, beware of benefits. Beware of good things. We're not saying not to be grateful for gifts. We should be. But ask yourself if you are only fine with God when you're getting what you want. Do you want to fight against that mentality? Then take the, Apostles Paul, the Apostle Paul's advice to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. True repentance, friends, is wanting God above all else, not just wanting the good things and the blessings he might give. This applies to us not just as individuals. It applies to us also as an entire church. Exodus 33.15 should challenge how we define success as a church. We, myself especially included in that, we should guard ourselves against thinking we are any less of a church because we are not large. Is God not present among us? We, myself especially included in this, should guard ourselves against wanting growth in numbers more than we want God himself. We want God's presence. So we ask, do we need to repent of wanting other things more than we want God? Well, repentance is good, but is restoration possible? Repentance is good, but is it possible for a holy God to be at peace with a sinful people? Moses led the people in repentance and told God that he wanted him above all else, and Moses got God. Here's point four, our last one, restoration after sin. Restoration after sin. Let's pick up in verse 19 of chapter 33. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were written on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the mountain to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me at the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose up early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us your inheritance. We read on of God renewing his covenant with Israel, And he highlights the importance of their devotion to him, wanting him above all else. And he highlights the temptations that they would face in the promised land. Let's pick up at the end of the chapter, chapter 34, in verse 29, when Moses comes down from the mountain. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again 
until he went in to speak with him. Moses wanted God, and Moses got God. God revealed himself to Moses. So what is it that's going on here? What is Moses seeing, and what is he experiencing? Well, we say that Moses truly saw God, but he did not fully see God. More on that soon. God told Moses in verse 19, chapter 33, that his goodness would pass before him. His goodness, meaning all that is lovely and generous in his character. Friends, this is the only time where that word goodness is used in a self-revelation of God. So what's going on here is unique. What's going on here? With the peak of God's revelation of himself did not come with something visible. It actually came with something audible, something that Moses heard. Look at chapter 34, verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and did what? Proclaimed the name of the Lord. God did not tell Moses to draw a picture of what he saw, but to write a record of it. Chapter 34, verse 27, that exact same command. This means that God's people were to find assurance and confidence that they were at peace with him. They were to find that assurance from God's word. They could find so much assurance from God's word that they could go forward in confidence that he was with them. They are restored to peace with God. This happens after God revealed himself. Here, God renews the covenant he made with his people, renews his promises, calls them to devotion to him. And Moses descended from the mountain with visible after effects of being present with the Lord, restored to God. So now we come to our day and we ask what would be a logical question. Is it possible for us to be restored to God as well? If you probably know the answer. Yes. And we have a restoration that is better. It is complete. I'll give you several reasons. The restoration we have to God is better and complete. For one, the restoration we have has a better confidence. A better confidence. So here in Exodus... God's sinful people were restored to peace with him through a mediator. Moses went on their behalf. But notice when he went on their behalf, he did not go on their behalf with an abundance of confidence. So flip back to chapter 32, verse 30. Moses says there, telling the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Notice what he says. Perhaps... I can make atonement for your sin. Compare that to Jesus throughout his earthly ministry saying, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. There is no perhaps in that statement. Compare it to a chapter we referenced last week, Hebrews chapter 9, where it says Jesus has secured, secured, and eternal redemption by means of his own blood. There is no perhaps in there. This restoration is better because it is based on a better confidence. But the restoration to God that we have through Jesus Christ is better because it fully satisfies God's justice and God's mercy. Notice verse 7 of chapter 34. That verse is quoted throughout Scripture because it's such an important statement of God's character. God forgives iniquity, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God forgives sin, but he cannot ignore sin. Well, you might ask, why? Why can't God just ignore it? Why can't he just get over it? Well, because damage has been done and someone has to pay for it. <clears throat> One summer, I think I was around 10 years old. Uh, childhood stories are never a good thing. Uh, <laughs> I was playing golf, of all things, in my neighbor's backyard. And 
you know, just like today, I could not hit a golf ball straight even back then. Um, so we were messing around with golf balls and having a good time. Hit one, and then you hear the sound that you do not want to hear. Uh, glass that is breaking. And so we do what all kids do in that moment, and we ran away. <laughs> but there was fallout from that action. The neighbors noticed that their window was broken. And in order for the window to be fixed, now you could just leave the window as it is, but in order for the window to be fixed, someone has to pay for it. And I'm thankful that in that situation, that someone was not me. The damage I caused was paid for by someone else. So we read in the book of Exodus. There's this system of sacrifices set up here to pay for people's sins. Sacrifices of bulls and goats. And we have to read this honestly, that there's no way a bull or a goat could be a viable substitute for a person. This is where Jesus comes in. God looked over the time when the tension between his desire to forgive and his uncompromising justice, that tension went unsatisfied. He overlooked that time because he knew that one day his son, Jesus, would satisfy that tension. And this is exactly what Paul said in Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. Because Jesus lived a sinless life, he is a perfect substitute for sinful people. And having died in our place, God not only treats Jesus' death as if it was our own, he treats Jesus' perfect life as if it was our own. Because of him, God can be merciful and just. Jesus solves that tension. The restoration he brings is far better than what is here. Well, the restoration in Jesus that he gives to us is better because it brings us closer to God. Moses heard a voice and previously had seen God's angel. And God's angel, if you read closely in the passage, is said to be the Lord himself, a way that God could be seen. But what the angel previewed, we see in full in the Lord Jesus. Moses heard the word of God spoken. In Jesus, we have the word of God incarnate in the flesh. John 1.18 says that Jesus came to make the Father fully known. Later on, Jesus will say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. After Moses came down from Sinai, the people couldn't look at him. He had to cover his face with a veil. The Apostle Paul talks about that veil in 2 Corinthians 3. And he says that veil still remains over our hearts and it prevents us from seeing God's beauty but when we turn toward Jesus the veil is removed and our eyes are opened to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus' restoration is better because it brings us closer to God friend that veil is removed when we turn toward Jesus so I ask have you taken that step toward Jesus in faith? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Look at the restoration to God that Jesus brings. Friends, on your own, you cannot have this. If you do not trust in him, why don't you? Be restored to God today through the only mediator between God and us, the Lord Jesus Christ. One more reason. One more reason, the restoration to God that Jesus brings us is better. It's better because it brings actual ongoing change. That passage, 2 Corinthians 3, it goes on to say that the Holy Spirit's work is to constantly turn our eyes and our hearts to look at Jesus. So we've spent a lot of moments dwelling on the tense parts of this passage you know, the foolishness of sin, the depths of it, the seriousness of sin. So we need to look at Jesus. 
The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said that for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. And friends, the more we look at Jesus, the more he transforms us. The more we are in awe of his love toward us, the more loving we will be toward others. The more we are in awe of the forgiveness he's given to us, the more we will forgive others. The more we are in awe of his devotion to the Father's will, the more devoted we will be. The more we look at Jesus, the more we will follow him and be changed. So what's the results of this better restoration Jesus has won for us? It is ongoing change, ongoing repentance. It is transformation. I'll let Isaac Watts close us out. From his last verse of the hymn we sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, talking about ongoing change, dwelling on the love of Christ. It says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Lord, we look at ourselves, and it is not just the surface where we find sin. We find sin even at the deepest level of our hearts. Each one of us, God. And Lord, this sin is serious. Because why would we sin? Why would we do wrong against you? The God who has no wrong in him. The God who is perfectly trustworthy. And yet, God, we remove you and put in your place lesser things. This is an awful thing. And God, we are sorry. So Lord, help us to repent. Give us grace to repent, to want you above all else. And Lord, help us again to look at Jesus and fix our eyes on him and see the restoration to you that he has won for us and see him and be made like him in our hearts. We pray this in his name.